0: Chapter 2 of It Happened in Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It Happened in Egypt by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter 2 Cleopatra and the Ship's Mystery. Now, at last, I can skip over the three days at sea and get to our arrival at Alexandria because, as I've said, the exciting part began soon after at Cairo. They were delightful days, for the Laconia is a Paris hotel disguised as a liner, and no man with blood in his veins could help enjoying the society of Bridget O'Brien and Rosamond Gilder. Cleopatra, too, was not to be despised as a charmer, and then there was the human interest of the protégés, the one with the eyes and the one who had reluctantly developed into the ship's mystery. Still, in spite of Biddy and Monny and the others, and not for them, my heart beat fast when, on the afternoon of the third day out from Naples, the ship brought us suddenly in sight of something strange. We were moving through a calm sea, more like liquefied marble than water, for it was creamy white rather than blue, veined with azure, and streaked, as marble is, with pink and gold. Far away across this gleaming floor blossomed a long line of high-growing lotus-flowers, white and yellow against a silver sky. The effect was magical, and the wonder grew when the big flower-bed turned into domes and cupolas and spires rising out of the sea. Unimaginative people remarked that the coast looked so flat and uninteresting they didn't see why Alexander had wanted to bother with it. But they were the sort of people who ought to stop at home in London or Birmingham or Chicago, and not make innocent fellow-passengers burn with unchristian feelings." Soon I should see Anthony and hear his news. I felt sure he would be at Alexandria to meet the ship. When Anton Effendi makes up his mind to do a thing, he will crawl from under a falling sky to do it. As the Laconia swept on, I hardly saw the glittering city on its vast prayer rug of green and gold, guarded by sea-forts like sleepy crocodiles. My mind's eyes were picturing Anthony as he would look after his wild Balkan experiences, brown and lean, even haggard and bearded, perhaps a different man from the smart young officer of everyday life, unless he'd contrived to refit in the short time since his return to Egypt, a day or two at most, according to my calculation. But all my imaginings fell short of the truth. As I thought of Anthony, Mrs. East came and stood beside me. I knew she was there before I turned to look, because of the delicate tinkling of little Egyptian amulets, which is her accompaniment, her leitmotif, and because of the scent of sandalwood with which, in obedience to the ancient custom of Egyptian queens, she perfumes her hair. I don't think I've described Monny Gilder's aunt, according to my conception of her, though I may have hinted at Biddy's. Biddy, having a habit of focusing her sense of humor on any female she doesn't wholly love, may not do Mrs. East justice." the fact is monny's aunt is a handsome creature distinctly a charmer who may at most have reached the age when cleopatra antony's and caesar's cleopatra died in the prime of her beauty if mrs east chooses to date herself at thirty-three any man not a confirmed misanthrope must believe her biddy says that until peter gilder was safely dead clara east was just an ordinary well-dressed pleasure-loving novel-reading chocolate-eating respectable widow of a new york stockbroker superstitious, perhaps, fond of consulting palmists and possessing billikins or other mascots. How many women are free from superstition? Slightly Oriental in her love of sumptuous colors and jewelry, but then her mother, Peter Gilder's stepmother, was a beautiful Jewish opera singer. After Peter's death, his half-sister gave up novels for Egyptian and Roman history, took to studying hieroglyphics, and learning translations of Greek poetry. She invited a clairvoyant and crystal-gazer, claiming Egyptian origin, to visit her at her Madison Square flat. Saida Sabri, banished from Bond Street years ago, took up her residence in New York, accompanied by her tame mummy. Of course it is the mummy of a princess, and she keeps it illuminated with blue lights, in an inner sanctum, where the bored-looking thing stands upright in its brilliantly painted mummy-case, facing the door." About the time of Saida's visit it was noticed by Mrs. East's friends, this according to Biddy, that the color of the lady's hair was slowly but surely changing from black to chestnut, then to auburn. She was heard to remark casually that Queen Cleopatra's hair had been red. She took to rich eastern scents, to whitening her face as eastern women of rank have whitened theirs since time immemorial. The shadows round her almond-shaped eyes were intensified, her full lips turned from healthful pink to carmine. The ends of her tapering fingers blushed rosily as sticks of coral. The style of her dress changed, at the moment of going into purple a second morning for Peter, and became oriental, even to the turban-like shape of her hats, and the design of her jewelry. She did away with crests and monograms on handkerchiefs, stationery, luggage, and so on, substituting a curious little oval containing strange devices, which Mani discovered to be the cartouche of Cleopatra. Then the whole truth burst forth. Saidas Sebris' crystal had shown that Clara East, Nie Gilder, was the reincarnation of Cleopatra the Great of Egypt. There had been another incarnation in between, but it was of no account. And like a poor relation who has disgraced in family, the less said about it the better. The lady did not proclaim her identity from the housetops. Rare souls possessing knowledge of Egyptian lore might draw their own conclusions from the cartouche on her note-paper and other things. Only Monny and a few intimates were told the truth at first. But afterward it leaked out, as secrets do, and Mrs. East seemed shyly pleased if discreet questions were asked concerning her amulets and the cartouche. Now, I never feel inclined to laugh at a pretty woman. It is more agreeable, as well as gallant, to laugh with her, But the trouble is Cleopatra doesn't go in for laughter. She takes life seriously. Not only has she no sense of humor, but she does not know the difference between it and a sense of fun, which she can understand if a joke about somebody else is explained. She is grateful to me because I look her straight in the eyes when the subject of Egypt is mentioned. Sheridan, from Harvard, has been in her bad books since he put Ptolemaic rulers outside of the pale of Egyptian history, called their art ornate and bad mentioned that each of their queens was named Cleopatra and classified the lot as modern, almost suburban. Mrs. East, leaning beside me on the rail, was burning with thoughts inspired by Alexandria. She had Plutarch's lives under her arm, and Hypatia in her hand. Of course she dropped them both, one after the other, and I picked them up. "'Do you know, Lord Ernest,' she said, in the low, rich voice she is cultivating, "'I don't mind telling you that I felt as if I were coming home after a long absence.' Moni wanted to see Egypt. I was dying to. That's the difference between us. It's natural, I answered, sympathetically. Yes, considering everything. Yet we're both afraid. She in one way, I in another. I haven't told her, she hasn't told me, but I know. She has the same impression I have, that something's going to happen, something very great, to change the whole of life. In Egypt, Kem, it seems to me I can remember calling it. You know it was Khem, until the Arabs came and named it Monsieur. Do you believe in impressions like that? I don't disbelieve, I said. Some people are more sensitive than others. Yes, or else they're older souls. But it may be the same thing. I can't fancy Monty an old soul, can you? Yes, she may be, for she's very intelligent, although so self-willed. I think what she's afraid of is getting interested in some wonderful man with Turkish or Egyptian blood, a magnificent creature like you read of in books, you know, and then you have to give them up in the last chapter, and send them away broken-hearted. I suppose there are such men in real life? I doubt if there are such romantic figures as the books make out,' I tried to reassure her. "'There may be a prince or two, handsome and cultivated, educated in England, perhaps, for some of the swells are sent from Egypt to Oxford and Cambridge, just as they are in India. But if Miss Gilder should meet a man of that sort, I should say she was too sensible and clear-headed.' Oh, she is almost too much for so young a girl, and she has a detestation for anyone with one drop of dark blood in America. She doesn't even like Jews, and that makes a friction between us, if we ever happen to argue. For, maybe you don't know, my mother was a Jewess. I'm proud of her memory. But that's just why, if you can understand, Moni's afraid in Egypt. Some girls would like to have a tiny flirtation with a gorgeous eastern creature, of course he must be a bay or prince or something, otherwise it would be in for a dig. But Monny would hate herself for being attracted. Yet I know she dreads it happening, because of the way I've heard her rave against the heroines of novels, saying she has no patience with them, they ought to have more strength of mind, even if it broke their hearts. I wondered if Biddy, too, suspected some such fear in the mind of her adored girl, and if that were one reason why she had turned matchmaker for my benefit." Since the first day out she had used stratagems to throw us together, and it seemed that years ago, when she used to teach the little girl French, Monnie's favorite stories had been of Castle Kalina, and my boyish exploits, birds' nestings on the crags. Biddy said this was a splendid beginning, if I had the sense to follow it up. "'And you,' I went on to Mrs. East, "'what do you feel is going to happen to you in the land of Kem? "'Oh, I don't know,' she said. "'I wish I did.' and afraid isn't exactly the word. I just know that something will happen. I wonder if history does repeat itself. I should hate to be bitten by an asp. Asps are out of fashion, I comforted her. I doubt if you could find one in all of Egypt, though I remember my Egyptian nurse used to say there were cobras in the desert in summer. Anyhow, we'll all be away before summer. I suppose so, she agreed. Yet who knows what will become of any of us? Madame Rashid Bey will be staying, of course." I don't know whether to be sorry for her or not. The bay is good-looking. He has brown eyes, and is as white as you or I. Probably it's true that she's been too seasick to leave her room for the last ten days, though Monty and Mrs. O'Bright, I mean Mrs. Jones, think she's shut up because men stared, and because Mr. Sheridan talked to her. As for me, there's always that question asking itself in my mind, what is going to happen? And I hear it twice as loud as before inside of Alexandria." Rakoti, we Lagade used to call the city. As she spoke, the long, oriental eyes glanced at me sidewise, but my trustworthy Celtic features showed a grave, intelligent interest in her statements. It must be, she went on, encouraged, that I'm the reincarnation of Cleopatra. Otherwise, how could I have the sensation of remembering everything? There's no other way to account for it. And you know my modern name, Clara, does begin with C. Saida must be right." she's told lots of women the most extraordinary things you really ought to consult her lord ernest if you ever go to new york i did not say as neil sheridan might that a frothy course of egyptian historical novels would account for anything i simply looked as diplomatic training can teach anyone to look evidently it was the right look in the right place for cleopatra continued more courageously recalling the great pharaohs of white marble which used to be one of the world's wonders in her day the museum and the marvellous library which took fire while Julius Caesar burned the fleet, nearby in the harbour. Think of the philosophers who deserted the college of Heliopolis for Alexandria, she said. Antony was more of a soldier than a student, but even he grieved for the library. You know he tried to console Cleopatra by making her a present of two hundred thousand manuscripts from the library of the king of Pergamus. It was a generous thought, like Antony, "'Does the harbour look changed?' I hastened to inquire. "'Not from a distance, though landing may be a shock. "'They tell me it's also Italian now. "'It was Greek in old days. "'I've read that there isn't a stone left of my—of the lovely palace on the "'Lokias Point, except the foundations they found in the seventies. "'But I must go and see what's left of the baths, even though there's only a "'bit of mosaic and the remains of a room. "'Mani's anxious to get on to Cairo, but we shall come out to Alexandria "'later.' Lord Ernest, when I shut my eyes, I really do seem to picture the Mariotic Lake, and the buildings that made Alexandria the glory of the world. Do you remember what Strabo said about Dain the architect who laid out the plan of the city in the shape of a Macedonian mantle to please Alexander? I'm not as well up in history as you are, I said, though I've studied a bit, because I was born in Egypt. Poor Alexander didn't live long in his fine city, did he? I wonder what he'd think of it now. "'And I wonder if his palace was handsomer than the Khedives, "'That huge white building with pillars and domes. "'I seem to remember—' "'What? "'You remember, too? "'You ought to consult Saida.' "'I didn't mean exactly what you mean,' I explained humbly. "'Still, why shouldn't I have lived in Egypt long ago? "'The learned ones say you're always drawn back where you've been in other states of existence. "'That's true, I'm sure. "'Well, then, why shouldn't I have the same sort of right to Egypt you have, if you were Cleopatra?' I believe you must have been, because you look as she ought to have looked, you know. Why shouldn't I have been a friend of Mark Antony, coming from Rome to give him good advice, and trying to persuade? Oh, not that he ought to give me up! No, indeed, to urge him to leave the island where he hid even from you. Didn't they call it Timonium? Why couldn't Antony play his cards so as to keep Cleopatra and the world, too? She'd have liked him better, wouldn't she? My friend Antone Effendi, I mean, Anthony Fenton, I stopped short, For the less said about Fenton, the better, at present. But Cleopatra caught me up. What? Have you really a friend, Antony? Where does he live, and what's he like? I hesitated, and, glancing round for inspiration, in other words, for some harmless necessary fib, I saw that Bridget and Monny had arrived on the scene. They had been pacing the deck arm in arm, and now, arrested by Mrs. East's question, they hovered near, awaiting my answer with vague curiosity a twinkle in biddy's eyes which i caught rattled me completely i missed all the easiest fibs and can catch hold of nothing but the bare truth there are moments like that when do what you will you must be truthful or silent and silence fires suspicion what is he i echoed feebly oh captain fenton he's in the jippy army stationed up at khartoum hundreds of miles beyond where cook's boats go You wouldn't be interested in Antony, because he spells his name with an H. And he's dark and thin, not a bit like your Antony, who was a big, stout fellow, I've always heard, and fair. Big, but not stout, Cleopatra corrected me. And, if he's incarnated again, he may be dark for a change. As for the H, that's not important. I wonder if we shall meet your Antony. We think of going to Khartoum, don't we, Monny? Yes, the girl said shortly. She was always rather short in her manner, at that time when, in her opinion, her aunt was being silly. I gathered, from a vexed flash in the gray eyes, that there had never been any hint of an impending Antony. "'Is your friend in Khartoum now?' Biddy ventured, in her creamiest voice. The twinkle was carefully turned off like the light of a dark lantern, but I knew well that Mrs. Jones was recalling a certain conversation, in which I had refused to satisfy her curiosity. Bridget's quick Irish mind has a way of matching mental jigsaw puzzles, even when vital bits appear to be missing. And if she could make a cat's paw of Cleopatra, the witch would not be above doing it. I bore her no grudge. Who could bear, soft-eyed, laughing, yet tragic, Biddy a grudge? But I wished that she and Monny were at the other end of the deck. I, uh, really, I don't know where my friend is just now, I answered, with more or less foundation of truth. "'I wonder if I didn't read in the papers about a Captain Fenton who took advantage of leave he'd got, to make a rush for the Balkans, and see the fighting from the lines of the Allies,' Biddy murmured, with dreadful intelligence. "'Can he be your Captain Fenton? I fancy he'd been stationed in the Sudan, and he was officially supposed to have gone home to spend his leave in England. Anyhow, there was a row of some sort after he and another man dropped down onto the Turks out of a Greek aeroplane. Or was it a Serbian one?' anyhow i know he oughtn't have been in it and paterfamilias and patriot wrote letters to the times about british officers who don't mind their own business why i saw the papers on board this ship they were old ones papers on ships always are but i think they came on at algiers or somewhere probably somewhere i witheringly replied i didn't come on at algiers so i don't know anything about it diplomatists never do know anything official do they duffer dear smiled biddy I'll wager your friend is interesting, even if he does spell himself with an H, and weighs two stone less than his namesake from Rome. Mrs. East believes in reincarnation, and I'm not sure I don't, though Monny's so young she doesn't believe in anything. Just suppose your friend is a reincarnation of Antony, without an H. And suppose, too, by some strange trick of fate he should meet you in Alexandria or Cairo. You'd introduce him to us, wouldn't you?" It's the most unlikely thing in the world, and he'd be no good to you. He's a man's man. He thinks he doesn't like women. Doesn't like women, echoed Monty Gilder. He must be a curmudgeon. Or has he been jilted? Rather not. Too impulsively I defended the absent. Girls go mad about him. He has to keep them off with a stick. He's got other things to think of than girls, things he believes are more important. Though of course he's mistaken. He'll find that out some day, when he has more time." So far he's been hunting other game, often in wild places. A book might be written on his adventures. "'What kind of adventures? Tell us about them,' said Biddy, "'up to the Balkan one, which you deny having heard of.' "'You wouldn't care about his sort of adventures. There aren't any women in them,' I said. "'Women want love-stories. It's only the heroines they care for, not the heroes, and I don't, somehow, see the right heroine for Fenton's story.' I noticed an expression dawning on Cleopatra's face, as I thus bereft her of a possible Antony with an H. There was a softening of the long eyes, and the glimmer of a smile which said, "'Am I Cleopatra, for nothing?' Never had she looked handsomer. Never before had I thought of her as really dangerous. I'd been inclined to poke fun at the lady for her superstition and her cartouche, and Cleopatrahood in general." But suddenly I realized that her make-up was no more exaggerated than that of many a beauty of the stage and society, and that nowadays women who are, well, fortyish can be formidable rivals for younger and simpler sisters. Not that I feared much for Antony from Cleopatra or any other female thing, for I'd come to consider him practically woman-proof. Still, I saw danger that the lady might make a dead set at him, if she got the chance, and all through my stupidity in giving away his name." Antony was a thrilling password to that mysterious something which she expected to happen in Egypt, and already she regarded my friend as a ram caught in the bushes for a sacrifice on her altar. But instead of screening him I had dragged him in front of the footlights. But fortunately there was still time to jerk down the curtain. I threw a glance at Bridget and Monny, and was relieved to find that their attention was distracted by a new arrival, Miss Rachel Guest from Salem, Massachusetts a pale, thin, lanky copy of our rose, with the beauty and bloom left out, but a pair of eyes to redeem the colorless face. Oh, yes, a pair of eyes, strange, hungry, waiting eyes. When I am alone, I fear Monny's favorite protégé, who started out to see the world on a legacy of two thousand dollars, and won Miss Gilder's admiration and hospitality through her unassuming pluck." To my mind she is the ideal adventuress of a new, unknown, and therefore deadly type. But for once I rejoiced at the sight of the pallid, fragile woman, so cheerful in spite of frail health, so frank about her twenty-eight years. She had news to tell of a nature so exciting that, after a whisper or two, Cleopatra forgot Antony in her desire to know the latest development in the ship's mystery. My stewardess says he won't let his wife land till we're all off murmured the ex-school mistress, in her colorless voice. She heard the end of a conversation, when she carried the poor girl's lunch to the door, just a word or two. So we shan't see her again, I suppose. "'Oh, yes, we shall,' said Monny. "'If wretched Bay can get a private boat, so can I. I'll not desert her if I have to stay on board the Laconia the whole night.' All four began talking together eagerly, and, blessing Miss Guest, I sneaked away. Presently I saw that clever Neil Sheridan and handsome, actor-like Willis Bailey, the two bets Noirs of Wretched Bay, had joined the group. By this time the roofs and domes and minarets of Alexandria sparkled in clearly sketched outlines between sunset, sky, and sea, sunset of Egypt, which divided ruby-flame of cloud, emerald dura, gold of desert, and sapphire waters into separate bands of color, vivid as the stripes of a rainbow there was a new buzz of excitement on the decks and in the ivy-draped veranda cafe. those who had been studying baedeker gabbled history ancient and modern until the conquest of alexandria and the bombardment of eighty-two became a hopeless jumble in the ears of the ignorant boers who had travelled inflicted advice on victims who had not people told each other pointless anecdotes of the last time i was in egypt while those forced to listen did so with the air of panthers waiting to pounce A pause for breath on the part of the enemy gave the wished-for opportunity to spring into the breach with an adventure of their own. We took an Arab pilot on board, the first Arab ever seen by the ladies of my party, and before the red torch of sunset had burned down to dusky purple, tenders like big black turtles were swimming out to the Laconia. We slaves of the Rose, however, had surrendered all personal interest in these objects. The word of Miss Gilder had gone forth, and unless Rashid Bey changed his mind at the last minute, we were all to lurk in ambush until he appeared with his wife. Then, somehow, Monny was to snatch her chance for a word with the ship's mystery, and whatever happened, none of us were to stir until it had been snatched. Arguments, even from Biddy, were of no avail, and mine were silenced by cold permission to go away by myself if I chose. It was terrible, it was wicked, to talk of people making their own beds and then lying in them. It was nonsense to say that, even if the wife of Rashid Bey asked for help, we could do nothing. Of course we would do something. If the girl wanted to be saved, she should be saved, if Monny had to act alone. Whatever happened, Mr. Sheridan and Mr. Bailey must remain in the background, as the very sight of them would drive Wretched Bey wild." I was thinking of Antony's surprise when, one after the other, two tenders should reach the quay without me, and if the gilded rose had not been so sweet, her youthful cocksureness would have made me yearn to slap her. In spite of all, however, the girl's excitement became contagious as passengers crowded down the gangway, and Rashid Bey did not appear. "'Allah, Allah!' cried the boatmen and the Arab porters, as they hauled huge trunks off the ship onto a float." Then, one after the other, the two tenders puffed away, packed from stem to stern. A few people, for whom there was no room, embarked in small boats manned by jabbering Arabs. Two of these cockle-shells still moved up and down under the black, mountainous side of the ship, and the officer, whose duty it was to see the passengers off, was visibly restless. He wanted to know if my lordship was ready, and my lordship's brain was straining after an excuse for further delay when a man and woman arrived opportunely, Rashid Bey in a veiled, muffled form hooked to his arm, a slender, appealing little figure, and through the veil I fancied that I caught a gleam of large, wistful, anxious eyes. The ladies were lying in wait out of sight, and I dodged behind the sturdy blue shoulders guarding the gangway. This was my first glimpse of the ship's mystery, and though I did not like my job, I had to surprise Rashid Bey and take his mind off his wife my curiosity was pricked. The figure in sealskin looked very girlish, the veiled head was bowed. The mystery took on human personality for me, and Monty Gilder was no longer obstinate, she was a loyal friend. I did not see that we could be of any use to the poor little fool who had married a Turk. Yet I was suddenly ready to do what I could. As Rashid Bey brought his wife to the top of the gangway, I lounged out and spoke. Disconcerted, the stout, good-looking man of thirty let drop the arm of the girl, putting her behind him. And this was what Monny wanted. They would have an instant for a few disjointed words. Monny might perhaps have time to promise help, which the girl dared not ask, even behind her husband's back. "'Good evening,' I said in French, taking advantage of a smoke-room acquaintance. "'Is that smart boat down there for you? I was trying to secure it in my best Arabic, but the fellow said it was engaged.' "'Yes, it is mine,' Rashid answered, civilly, trying to hide his annoyance. "'I telegraphed from Naples to a friend in Alexandria to send me a private boat. "'I do not like crowds. "'Neither do I, so I waited too,' I explained. "'They told me there were always boats, and my big luggage is gone. "'I suppose yours has too?' "'No doubt,' said Rashid Bey. "'Good-night, my lord Burrow.' He turned quickly to his wife, as if to catch her at something, but the slim, veiled mystery stood meekly waiting his will. To my intense relief, Monny and her friends were invisible. I could hardly wait until the two figures had passed out of sight down the gangway to know whether my skirmishing attack had been successful. "'Well,' I asked, as Miss Gilder, Mrs. Jones, Cleopatra, and Rachel Guest, and two maids filed out from concealment, "'Did I give you time enough? Did you get the chance you wanted?' "'Yes, thank you ever so much,' said Monny, with one of those dazzling smiles that would make her a beauty even if she were not the favorite Sunday supplement heiress. "'I counted on you, and she had counted on me. She must have known I wouldn't fail her, for she had this bit of paper ready. When I jumped out she slipped it into my hand. We didn't need to say a word, and wretched Bay has no idea I came near her.' "'A bit of paper,' I echoed, with interest for it sounded the obvious secret thing-a bit of paper stealthily slid from hand to hand yes with her address on it nothing more in writing but two other words pricked with a pin save me don't you see if her husband had pounced on it no harm would have been done he wouldn't have noticed the pin-pricks as a woman would i thought she was going to live in cairo and i believe she thought so too at first but she's written down the name of a house in a place called asuet "'Did you ever hear of such a town, Lord Ernest?' "'Oh, yes,' said I. "'The Nile boats stop there, and people see tombs and mummied cats and buy silver shawls.' "'Good,' said Monny. "'My boat shall stop there, but not only for tombs or cats or silver shawls. I have an idea that the poor girl is frightened and wants me to help her escape.' "'Great heavens!' I exclaimed. "'You mustn't, on any account, get mixed up in an adventure of that sort. Remember, this is Egypt. "'I don't care,' said Monny, "'if it's the moon.' She believed that this settled the matter. I believed the exact opposite, but I left it at that for the moment as the boat was waiting, and a suet seemed a long way off. This was my first lesson in what Bridget called Moni's Little Ways, but the second lesson was on the heels of the first End of Chapter Two.